Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Now, if you're listening to this on the day it's released, then today, July 1st, marks the 157th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. That battle took place between July 1st and July 3rd in 1863 during the American Civil War. So that's why today we're going to learn about the epic four-and-a-half-hour-long film from 1993 simply called Gettysburg. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'm excited to be joined by Jim Hessler and Eric Lindblade. Jim and Eric are both Gettysburg-licensed battlefield guides and are the co-hosts of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Jim has also written multiple books on the battle, including Sickles at Gettysburg, which won the Gettysburg Civil War Roundtables Book Award as the most outstanding work on the Gettysburg campaign. Before we bring Jim and Eric on the line, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. 1% of all battlefield casualties during the American Civil War were caused by bayonets. Number two, winning the Battle of Gettysburg did not guarantee victory for winning the American Civil War. Number three, the Union planned the Battle of Gettysburg to push the Confederacy out of Pennsylvania. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode— And by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Jim and Eric to chat about the historical accuracy of Gettysburg. After the opening credits, the movie sets up the Battle of Gettysburg with some voiceover. According to the movie, in June of 1863, General Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia invade Union territory with an army of 70,000 men. Toward the end of June, 80,000 soldiers in the Union Army head through Maryland and into Pennsylvania in pursuit of the Confederate Army. Then the movie suggests the Civil War has been raging for two years up until this point, and also that General Lee knows about a letter offering peace that is planned to be delivered to Abraham Lincoln, the president, uh, soon after General Lee defeats the Union Army. Can you give us a little more historical context around the way the movie sets up the Battle of Gettysburg and the size of these two armies meeting in Pennsylvania? Eric, let's start with you. Yeah, I think the movie sort of takes a very complex event and tries to kind of distill it down as quick as they can. And I think also sort of making Gettysburg seem almost the climactic point of the American Civil War. And if you would knew nothing of the war and you just watched the movie, you would think the South is just winning victory after victory after victory. And certainly that's the case in Virginia, but uh, elsewhere, not so much. It's really, by 1863, an unmitigated disaster for the Confederacy in a lot of areas. Uh, so Robert E. Lee's army, and by this point, has kind of become the best hope the Confederacy has. Uh, Lee is going to bring with him about 75,000 soldiers. The Army of the Potomac is going to be numbering close to 100,000. So they do get the numbers a little off. But, um, but for the most part, these are two, for the most part, 
equally matched armies. You know, it's not like Lee's outnumbered two to three to one or anything like that. So, anything to add to that, Jim? Yeah, a couple things. First of all, before I answer a single question, I want to make it clear that I love this movie like a big, sloppy, shaggy dog. So even though it's going to seem to the listeners, you know, that we're going to spend the next hour kind of maybe bashing it a little bit. Eric and I love, well, I don't want to speak for Eric, but I think Eric loves the movie as much as I do. So, yeah, having said that, you know, to Eric's point about complexity, Robert E. Lee in reality had a number of complex reasons for wanting to invade the North. You know, he wanted to take the war out of the South. He wanted to draw pressure away from threatened points. Obviously, he wanted to live off the Northern economy for the summer. And certainly, I do think Lee was looking to fight, you know, a battle. But the idea that they present in the movie, you know, that a letter has been drawn up, like there's a letter that somebody's got in their pocket and somebody's going to walk into Lincoln's office and put it on his desk. It's a very dramatic kind of thing, but there's no real credible, credible evidence that that was, you know, a significant factor in um, in Lee's plans. I mean, heck, Eric and I have talked about this before. Do we even know a reliable source that talks about said letter offering peace? I've never found it. The reasons that Lee wants to invade the North are more complex than was presented in the movie, but hey, that's Hollywood for you, right? Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> now, I know a, a lot of people listening to this may not, uh, they're outside the United States, so can you give a little more geographical context around, at this point in the American Civil War, where... Where are the armies? I mean, obviously, Gettysburg is in, in Pennsylvania, but is that like right along the, the lines of the north and south as at this point in the war? Or had those lines kind of shifted for where those were considered? It depends on how you define the south. Um, if you would look at based on areas that maintain the institution of slavery, then the border would be the Pennsylvania-Maryland border. But Maryland remained loyal to the North, even though they had the institution of slavery. So really, you then draw that line down to the border of Maryland and Virginia to sort of be the the dividing line. Of course, by 1861, Northern troops occupied Northern Virginia. So you draw that line even further south. So really, when we look at what is these territorial borders, it really depends on where armies are operating and when. There's not really sort of a defined geographic line that we think of today. You know, again, I would add to that in terms of Maryland. One of the things Robert E. Lee is trying to do, both when he when he moves north in 1862 and then when he comes north again in 1863, is trying to win, you know, so to speak, the hearts and minds of the Maryland population. Well, speaking of the movie, we see Jeff Daniels' character, Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, and he's the colonel of the 20th Maine Regiment. He gives a speech to some 120 men who were mutineers from the second Maine. And the movie explains that those 120 men thought that they were signing up to fight with the second Maine only, but they actually signed like a three-year contract. One of the men tells Chamberlain that he's fought in like 11 engagements up to this point. So you can tell it's not about, you know, I don't care what contract I've signed, basically. Like, they're done, right? They're, they've done their fair share. They're done. They're not going to fight anymore. And so the army doesn't really know what to do with them, at least according to the way the movie portrays things. But apparently Chamberlain is authorized to use whatever force necessary, including potentially shooting 
these 120 men if they don't fight. There's this dramatic, Jeff Daniels does great acting job, I think, giving this speech to these men. He offers them a chance at, you know, you don't have to join in the battle, but if we lose this fight, we're going to lose the war. So how accurate is this storyline that the movie portrays about the second main and and that speech that Jeff Daniels' character gives in the movie? You know, the, the hard heads of the second main, that essentially did happen. You know, these guys from the second main needed a new home. It didn't happen, though, right on the eve of the battle. It happened, I forget the exact date, middle of May, I want to say, or something like that. I think after Chancellorsville, if I remember correctly. That notion of having to integrate guys into the second main does happen. But again, you know, the movie they portrayed is happening, I think, literally on the morning of July 1st. And of course, you know, that builds up the drama. How is Chamberlain going to integrate all these all these hard heads into the, uh, into the red man? So the timing is definitely compressed. But again, you see that a lot in Hollywood movies. So, we'll, you know, we'll kind of give them a bogey on that. Um, what do you think, Eric? Did Chamberlain give him a, a rousing speech like that? What do you think? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. By all accounts, Chamberlain was a noted orator. After the war, he gave a number of speeches in not only his career in academia, but also in his political career as governor of Maine. Um, so this is a guy that probably could give a good speech. Now, whether or not he gets everybody together and gives them this, you know, sort of moral of a sermon, if you will. We don't know that. But certainly if anybody could give a speech, Chamberlain was more than capable of it. He was not, uh, you know, a guy that was known as not being, you know, able to give a speech if necessary. It's a good point. Whether it actually happened, it's certainly in character. But again, you know, the other thing too, which we touched on in the in the opening, this idea again, we're fighting the climactic battle. You know, man, oh man, if we lose this one, the war's over. So now we're like, what, 15 minutes into the movie and we've already heard that two or three times? Again, trying to set the stage that, you know, Gettysburg is the Super Bowl and, you know, whoever wins this one is going to take it all. That's definitely what I took away from that at that point was the entire war hangs in the balance on this battle, especially after that speech. And I think Lee certainly felt a victory on northern soil could go a long way into possibly leading to Confederate independence. Now, we're probably not going to have a, you know, George Washington meets Cornwallis at Yorktown type situation where the army surrenders. But there was political pressure on the Lincoln administration in the summer of 1863 to end the war. Over 200,000 Americans had already died up to this point. And in April of 1863, a federal draft had been implemented in the North. So in many ways, 1863 in the summer is not that far removed from, say, 1968 over the Vietnam conflict. You know, the war is kind of hanging in the balance a little bit. So if Lee can win a victory in the North, it certainly would increase the odds possibly of Southern independence. But I want to then kind of tamp down the idea of Lee wins at Gettysburg, this war is over. That's not the case. Yeah, exactly. What I, you know, what I always tell people on tours is, you know, that again, it would more than anything, it would be potentially, potentially forcing Lincoln from a political perspective. Again, getting back to the movie, you know, this opening of we're going to destroy the army and put a letter on his desk, you know, isn't isn't practical really in 1863 or really at any other time in the war in subtle mathematics. You know, you don't see armies, quote unquote, getting destroyed. Certainly not one as large as the uh, Army of the Potomac, even if they've skinnied the numbers down a little bit in that opening intro. 
So it sounds like General Lee was going for a huge moral victory, almost, you know, winning this battle in the north. Correct me if I'm wrong, but almost hoping that this moral victory might help push the north to almost sue for peace. I mean, not necessarily right away or or any of that, but get that ball rolling. If people are already starting to be tired of the war, then maybe this can help further that cause. Does that sound like maybe the storyline there? I think that's the best case scenario. I mean, certainly people in the north, as you said, are tired of the war. The Democrats were obviously pressuring Lincoln to, um, you know, to get out of it, which you see in the subsequent election. That's probably a best case scenario, even in a worst case scenario. If Lee can deal a military victory or defeat the Army of the Potomac, Lee can even just disrupt the Union Army's plans for the summer. And and Lee says that in a couple of occasions. He says, look, you think I lost Gettysburg? Those people didn't do anything for the rest of the summer. And even, you know, from from Lee's perspective, even that can be considered a victory. I think we have to look at what victory is for the South. The North has to win. The South just doesn't have to lose. So the metrics are different there. You know, the South doesn't have to go win this thing. They just don't lose. And so I think Lee is certainly looking at that. Keep in mind, in 1863, Pennsylvania is the second largest state in the Union. Imagine the political impact of losing a battle in the second largest state in your nation. How's that going to affect Lincoln, say, next November with his election? So we can see how this can play out. And, and often, as I tell people on tours, you don't have to win a war on the battlefield. You can just as easily win it politically. And I think that's really what Lee is looking at by 1863. The odds of winning militarily are down, but the odds of winning politically are certainly up in his favor when he embarks the Gettysburg campaign. And that's another comment I always make, too, about the importance of Pennsylvania. You know, what I, what I always remind people on tours is that, you know, if Lee captures Harrisburg or not South Pennsylvania in 1863, that's a big deal. If he captured Harrisburg today, he could keep it. We don't want it. But in 1863, that was a big deal. Heading back to the movie, Sam Elliott's character, General John Buford, he's leading his cavalry near the outskirts of Gettysburg, and he's the first to come across the Confederate Army as they're marching. The movie's dialogue says that with the number of men they see the Confederate Army from afar, they thought that they were headed for Harrisburg, but there's too many troops to be a raiding party. So they determine that Lee has turned. And there's a brief mention from General Buford where he mentions taking two brigades of men into town. But then right after this, then there's some text on screen that puts us about 14 miles from Gettysburg in Taneytown, Maryland, as Chamberlain and his men in the Union Army arrive in that town. Then we see General Buford and his men arriving in Gettysburg. But they don't stay in town. Buford leads his men to farmland just outside town where he surveys what I can only assume. And I don't remember the movie ever mentioning this, but I'm assuming as he's surveying this that he is predicting this is going to be the site of a battle. Like this is the site of the battlefield. He's kind of looking at it ahead of time. So the idea that I get from the movie as I'm watching this here is that the Union Army basically arrives first and they position themselves around the town of Gettysburg so they can have a strategic foothold in the area when the Confederate Army gets there. Is that true? What I often tell people about the movie versus history is I do feel like the basics of this movie are accurate, and I'm emphasizing basics. 
Now, there's colleagues who would disagree with me and say, my God, no, none of it's accurate. But that's not true. The basics are accurate. So what really happened? Buford arrives in the Gettysburg area on June 30th. He sees Confederates approaching from the West, some guys that Eric might be familiar with, but um, some Confederates approaching from the West. The two sides sort of break off and there's no actual combat on the 30th. But what you get is Buford realizes Confederates are massing to the West of Gettysburg. And likewise, the Confederates now realize something is going on in Gettysburg. And that's kind of what happens. And that's going to set the stage for the uh, two sides colliding on on July 1st in reality. One of my biggest grievances with the movie is really none of that is really explained in the movie. I mean, they, they then sort of then segue into uh, Lee Zaff officer Walter Taylor talking about apple butter and flapjacks and buttermilk and, and all this stuff. You know, like, you, like the movie makes it seem like the Confederates are going into Gettysburg to eat breakfast, which again, you know, supplies and all that stuff, I guess, is, is true in a sense. But to the other part of your question, one thing I th- I think, and you know, we'll see what Eric says. Um, I think the movie kind of overplays. We're fighting for the high ground. You know, Buford is thumping his chest and saying, "The high ground, the devil. They're going to have the high ground." And that that's a powerful mythology because that has pervaded itself into other books and literature and people who come to the the battle who say the battle was fought for the high ground. Not any high ground, but the high ground, you know, that Buford's been been talking about. So, again, I'll go back to my opening. They get the basics right, but I think they kind of mess up a whole lot of details. The challenge of the movie Gettysburg is how all over the place the timeline is. You know, you go from daylight to darkness. They combine things. So it doesn't really give you a blow-by-blow accounting. My take with John Buford is, does he probably notice the high ground around Gettysburg? Absolutely. He's a professional trained soldier. But I think Buford's more concerned with the 10 roads that intersect in and around this town. Road networks are critical in a military campaign. He's also in communications with General John Reynolds, who's the left-wing commander of the Army of the Potomac. So he's getting information back. He's gathering information as well. I think Buford understands there's probably going to be a confrontation, but I don't think he's necessarily saying Gettysburg is where we're going to put our flag in the ground and we're going to make our stand here. July 1st is a very fluid situation. It's really not until the mid to late afternoon that really it's looking like this grand battle is going to be fought here at Gettysburg. Very well could have just been a very sharp engagement west and north of the town on July 1st. The armies withdraw and we talk about something else. Of course, that doesn't happen. To that point, one of the greatest fallacies, I think, of this movie is you can come away from this movie thinking John Buford, Winfield Hancock, and Joshua Chamberlain run the Army of the Potomac. Um, In reality, there's a guy named George Meade who is commander of the Union Army, and by June 30th, July 1st, you know, really well into the late afternoon, early evening of July 1st, Meade had not decided where he was going to fight that battle. And there's, you know, there's things where he's talking about falling back into Maryland along the line along Pike Creek and, and, and things of that nature. But Gettysburg is an important crossroads town, not only for the Union Army, but frankly, for the Confederates, too. And that's one of the reasons why the Confederates are coming. And, you know, not necessarily because they're mooning over Apple Jacks, you know, like, like they seem to be in the movie. 
but I still love the movie. I'm not. I'm, I'm, let's, we'll throw out that caveat every 10 or 15 minutes, you know, in case somebody tunes in late or something like that. But what did one of our listeners say? Uh, the Gettysburg is the movie we love to hate and hate to love. Yeah, let's give Superfan Liza a shout out for that. That was exactly it. The movie we love to hate and hate to love. And we love you, Liza, if you're listening out there. It's great that, you know, you can pick it apart, but still and love it for what it is. Like just knowing that, you know, it's not going to be entirely accurate by any means, but, you know, it's, it can still be a, a good movie as a movie. <laughs> Let's be clear on something. We didn't say this is a good movie. We just said we loved it. We didn't necessarily say it's a good movie. Let's clarify that, too. <laughs> Fair point. Good good catch. I appreciate that. Good catch. <laughs> the weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Well, you're, you're talking about how the actual battle started and the way that the movie shows this. We're on the Confederate side and we see a, a messenger deliver a message to Martin Sheen's version of General Lee that General Hill is going to be taking his men into the town of Gettysburg to get some shoes. General Lee clarifies that he doesn't want any conflict until all their troops are consolidated. And the messenger assures him that, don't worry, General Hill doesn't expect any opposition. There's just some local militia. Not going to be a big deal. And then soon after, General Longstreet arrives, tells General Lee that he saw cavalry. So it's not just local militia. And as they're talking, we can hear some artillery firing in the distance. General Lee asks for General Heath who they say is the most forward commander, I believe. And the camera cuts to Gettysburg, where now we have Union troops firing cannons at the Confederate soldiers. General Buford that we talked about earlier, he's watching from a tall building in town, and he smiles as he re remarks that, you know, he, he's got the best ground positions. You're talking about the high ground there again. And that the Confederates are only hitting with one brigade. So as I was watching this, I got the idea that, okay, the Confederates are going into town. They need shoes. They need supplies. You know, they, they they need these things. And then they were not expecting the Union soldiers there. They almost got, for lack of a better term, ambushed. And that's that's basically how all this started. Is that how the Battle of Gettysburg actually started? Yes and no. The Battle of Gettysburg is what typically military historians refer to as a meeting engagement. Simply put, the armies run into each other. They collide. The idea that the movie kind of creates that Henry Heath just sort of bumbles into Union troops, 
Heath was aware of a union presence of some kind in his front the day before. Now, what the nature of that is, that was to be seen. I always like to tell people that on June 30th, he sends one brigade towards Gettysburg. On July 1st, he sends an entire 7,000-man division. So it's one of those trust-but-verify situations. And what we then see, you know, even with the idea of Longstreet's already there with Lee, Longstreet doesn't arrive on the battlefield of Gettysburg until mid-afternoon, after the Confederates have already driven Union troops back. So that kind of, once again, that odd little timeline they have. But it does kind of make it seem that the Confederates are just kind of ambling into this unbeknownst to them when the reality is they had a better sense of it. Now, they didn't have a perfect sense, but they you know, clearly were not blind. The shoe thing is pervasive. You know, remember the movie, the movie Gettysburg is based on a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Killer Angels, you know, which dates back to the mid 1970s. And although I wasn't around back then, you know, I think sort of in an earlier era, the idea that battle was fought over shoes, you know, was more, again, more pervasive than sort of the enlightened era that we live in today. And we kind of understand, um, you know, all, all of these other factors. So it's not surprising to me that they bring shoes into the movie script. I would almost be surprised if they didn't do it. Again, some of the other basics are generally there. Was Henry Heath leading the Confederate advance? Yes. Did he go bumbling into it? No. Was he surprised? Yes. And a lot of that first day, they kind of do a lot of uh, telescoping. You know, again, things that take six, eight hours to occur in the movie just kind of happened with one or two couriers, you know, Lee sitting on his horse and two two messengers come up and kind of explain the whole thing to him. So again, a little bit of little bit of telescoping. Um the first day in the movie is probably my least favorite part because I don't think they do justice to how big or how important the real first day was. But you know, I guess when you're already talking a uh, you know a four hundred and sixty minute movie, something's gotta uh, end up in the cutting room. And that kills me because I am a first day guy. That's my favorite day of the battle. I guess we can have a favorite day of a battle. But, you know, it's to me, people overlook the first day in many respects. But, you know, the casualties inflicted by the two armies, if the first day was a battle just on its own, it would rank around the 13th bloodiest battle of the American Civil War. Just day one. And so I think it does get overlooked. It's not this little skirmish. I mean, it's arguably some of the heaviest fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg takes place on the first day. The one thing the movie First Day, I think, does do is make a star out of John Buford. Buford was not, again, if you go back to the literature of the 1970s, the 1960s, the 1950s, John Buford was not the quote-unquote big star that he is today. And so influentially, this movie has really indoctrinated a generation of historians and Gettysburg students that John Buford is the man and John Buford saved the Union. I'm not, I'm not dismissing Buford in any way, shape, or form. Sam Elliott does a great job portraying him. I think Sam Elliott is better as Virgil Earp in Tombstone. My point being, you're looking at influence. How does this movie influence people? And it's certainly given a lot of people, you know, the uh, the impression that, man, John Buford saved the day on July 1st. And again, as you know, we like to say that may be partially true, but it's a little more complicated than that. Was there anybody who was the hero of the day, if not Buford? What I often say is there's a tendency 
to say this is the hero of the event. There's multiple heroes. The Union victory at Gettysburg is a team effort. It's collaborative. Uh, And with Buford, do I think he did this overwhelmingly heroic job here at Gettysburg? No, I don't. doesn't mean that he's not competent. He did his job. And sometimes in a critical situation like that, that's the most important thing. Do your job. Does he really go above and beyond? Not necessarily, but he didn't have to. He did what he was asked to do, and he did it ably and bought the time needed to get infantry on the battlefield. You talk about heroes, we could talk about the the common enlisted men, the Ben Crippens of the world, you know, shaking their fists at those approaching rebels, you know, as they're coming in. Certainly, the Union victory at Gettysburg is a team effort, but there's a lot of difficult members of that team, and not everybody brings their, their A-game to Gettysburg. And you see some examples of that on July 1st with guys like uh, Francis Barlow. But I think of Winfield Scott Hancock's rise to prominence. Um, and on the, the real afternoon, evening of July 1st, as the Union forces were rallying on Cemetery Hill, it was Hancock who arrived on the field and helped rally those troops. And, you know, again, you, you don't really see so much of that in the movie, but you do see a lot of Hancock as we go into the subsequent days. Earlier, you were talking about how the Confederate soldiers pushed the Union soldiers back initially. And we get that sense in the movie. I think some of the initial reports that General Lee gets in the movie are that the Union soldiers are retreating back into Gettysburg. And so he orders artillery to fire on the hill. He sends Major Taylor to deliver a message to General Ewell that he wants the general to take the hill beyond the town, if practical, so they can get some higher ground. And can we go back to that same sort of concept of higher ground? And he wants that hill to be captured by nightfall. Meanwhile, we see General Longstreet mentioned to General Lee something along the lines of how their strategy has always been to act defensively to keep the army intact. But now we can see that General Lee wants to initiate the offensive. You know, you got the enemy on the run. You don't stop now. Keep going. And Longstreet reminds Lee, you know, they may have pushed back two corps, but we got five more coming. So was it common for the Confederate army to operate with more of a defensive mindset, like we get that idea here in the movie, and then it was change, generally decide, we got him on the run, we're going to keep pushing. How much of that actually happened? Lee, by Gettysburg, Lee has been in command around a year of the Army of Northern Virginia. If we look at his campaigns, his first campaign with the Army, the seven days around Richmond, it's primarily offensive for the Confederates, hurling their forces at George McClellan's army to drive them from the gates of Richmond. After the success of the seven days, Lee begins to move into northern Virginia. We have a initially what started as a tactical defense, but really a strategic offensive at Second Manassas. Lee then builds that victory, goes into Maryland. Uh, once again, offensive actions. Um, he'll fight primarily defensive battle at Antietam, uh, more out of necessity than any desire on his part. There is the great defense at Fredericksburg. Then Lee turns around a few months later and is on the offensive again at Chancellorsville. So Lee is an offensive-minded general. Lee is not a guy to sit back and give the enemy the initiative. He's going to take it to his opponent, and that's what he does. And that's ultimately what leads Lee into, into Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863. So, Dan, where a lot of this comes from is, again, going back to the novel The Killer Angels, 
one of the primary sources that Michael Shara used was James Longstreet's memoirs uh, from Manassas to Appomattox. Uh, now, maybe some folks are familiar with the Longstreet story, but Longstreet was a very controversial individual in the South mm-hmm. after the war, primarily for political reasons, but also because Longstreet, after the fact, went on record as criticizing Lee at Gettysburg. And so one of the things Longstreet says in his writings is that prior to beginning this, you know, this great raid into Pennsylvania, Longstreet alleges that he and Lee essentially agreed on, you know, we would only fight defensive battles and and, and things of that nature. And it's because of that assertion by Longstreet in his memoirs that carries over then into Shara's novel and then ultimately Ron Maxwell's script that we sort of really position the great dramatic conflict of the Confederate Army at Gettysburg is this supposed Lee versus Longstreet thing. Lee wanting to attack, Longstreet wanting to um, fight on the defense. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I think there's some internal historical evidence to suggest it did. But what I think is a problem with the movie in that regard is it really sort of portray, and again, the novel too, I should add, but it really sort of portrays Robert E. Lee as almost in an unhinged obsession to attack, you know, the wise, all-knowing Longstreet, he knows where all the Yankee Corps are, and he knows where the high ground is, but, you know, Lee is just kind of, you know, in a lot of ways almost comes off his his rocker and just obsessed on on making these suicidal attacks. And again, that is, you know, now very personal in the Gettysburg mythology. You know, we get people here who think, geez, well, you know, why was Lee so crazy? Why didn't he listen to Longstreet? Um, you know, and that's sort of, again, become one of these things and sort of the demythologizing of Robert E. Lee, you know, the guy who used to be the marble man and, and, and beyond reproach. Now it's very fashionable to knock Lee. And the killer angels in the movie Gettysburg have played a role in that for sure. Yeah, that's a very different narrative than I expect than I thought when I saw the movie. It was I just expected that they were being more defensive, like because they did stumble upon each other the way the movie goes. Like they weren't expecting this, and so it was. Oh well, now we just got to survive. Yeah, and before we go on with that, I just want to call out: internet trolls have accused me in the past of being a lost cause guy. You know, for quote unquote defending Lee. I'm from New York. I'm not a lost cause guy. I'm not defending Lee, but but the truth is the truth, and I like Longstreet, but again. You know, I think three things, I think you take three things away from this movie. It elevates the role of John Buford. It elevates the role of Joshua Chamberlain. And the movie really serves to rehabilitate James Longstreet's reputation. Again, is this defensive genius. Longstreet himself had a number of battles where he was, you know, very strong on the offense. But again, it portrays him as a guy who just, you know, wants to fight defensively. Lee is not unhinged at Gettysburg. But I think Lee in the last year, while he has been successful, there's a lot of caveats to those victories. You know, he draw yes, he drives McClellan from around Richmond, but he doesn't destroy McClellan's army. He had a number of opportunities possibly to do that um, at times during the seven days. Second Manassas, the Union Army escapes back to Washington. Fredericksburg, they get back across the Rappahannock. He can't crush them. And at Chancellorsville, they cross back the river again. He doesn't get to deliver that decisive blow he's looking for. So that's what Lee is really, I think, looking for is that decisive blow. Lee is Lee's going big here. He's not looking for just another tactical victory. He's looking for a decisive strategic victory. And that's what I think drives a lot of his thinking. 
I want to just take a step back from some of the strategy side of it and almost get kind of put in the context of what this battle was like, because it's very different from, I think, you know, a lot of people today will, you know, see movies and a lot of movies are going to be like World War II movies or something like that. And battles are just going all the time. Right. And at the end of the first day in this in the movie, we see everybody stops fighting like it's okay end of the first day the fight's over we're going to figure out what we're going to do the next day the soldiers are gathered around the campfire is that kind of the way that the battle this battle went that they would take a break at night and then let's start back up at nine in the morning (laughs) maybe a little exaggeration there on my part but (laughs) what i often find is the general public that i deal with often thinks that fighting you know fighting ends at nightfall because of a gentleman's agreement you know these old-fashioned gentlemen kind of shake hands and agree to uh, agree to fight, not fight until until morning. And and of course, you know, that's not accurate. What you do see in general is diminished combat at sundown because they don't have the technology to fight at night. For the most part, the fighting does end when it gets dark because you can no longer see, you can no longer keep your formations and things of that nature. Now, again, there are examples of nighttime fighting during the Civil War, and even at the Battle of Gettysburg, as you said, they don't really show that. Yeah, and I think at times the Civil War has been, it almost kind of glosses over the brutality of the war. We know the numbers, but we don't think about just how brutal it was. And I often tell people on tours, what the Civil War needs is a scene similar to the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. War and just its unvarnished, ugly nature, and guys' brains getting splattered, hearing bones cracking, limbs getting blown off. That's the Battle of Gettysburg. It's not just this, you get shot and you get to say something profound before you die. It's you're getting hit in the arm by a 58 caliber musket ball that's basically torn your shoulder to pieces. That doesn't get portrayed. And really, Gettysburg, for the most part, is relatively bloodless as a movie. It's kind of the sanitized version. And I think that really sticks in people's mind is how they view the Civil War and Civil War combat. Um, it's every bit as ugly as modern combat, if not uglier, frankly. That's a great point. And, you know, the problem is, and I'm even thinking this as we record this, you know, the History Channel just ended last night, their three-part series on Grant. The other, the other side of that coin is often when Hollywood, whether it be a movie or even documentaries, and frankly, documentary makers should know better, too many of these Civil War battles and movies, though, also often look like, you know, the WWE. I always tell people in a movie, it's in a movie, every Civil War battle in a movie will end with a fist fight. You know, forget about the Napoleonic linear tactics and, and formations. Every civil, And you see it here in Gettysburg, at least, you know, little round top and pickets charge. But every Civil War movie ends with guys, ah, you know, just running into each other and screaming and punching and clubbing each other with the muskets or that. And of course, they did have that in the movie, or they did have that in real life. But I would love to see a movie where, for God's sakes, for once, we just do Napoleonic tactics, because that's what the Civil War was. And you can blaze away at each other with the rifle muskets for 20 minutes on film if you want. But again, every battle doesn't end with guys just running and jumping on top of each other and kicking each other in the groin and, and all of that stuff. And again, you know, you see a couple unfortunate examples of that here at Gettysburg in the movie, I should say. I, now that you say it, yeah, it, it is like you, you see them 
charging and oh okay now now it's the phase of the battle where we put on the bayonets and get close combat and okay now it's the phase of the battle where you know you're beyond the, the bayonet all right now i guess let's let's go at it you know and i hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it and i'm glad you mentioned the bayonet because that's often what people think of is how you would fight one percent of all battlefield casualties inflicted during the civil war one percent was inflicted by bayonets oh wow I would imagine that'd be a lot more. They never got close enough. You know, usually you didn't get close enough or in the mid, if you do have hand to hand combat, frankly, cracking a guy's skull open with the butt of your rifle is a lot easier than stabbing him. And I think that's, once again, we go back to this point, the civil war people want to be this sort of warm and cuddly war. It's not, it's, it's ugly. It's brutal. And so much of the Civil War is how we want the war to be, as opposed to what it actually was. And again, you see examples of this in the movie Gettysburg. Uh, part of that, too, permeates from, the I think, the whole brother against brother thing being overplayed. Um, and again, the movie Gettysburg, although there's some great scenes, you know, the notion of Hancock and Armistead, you know, did these guys know each other? Yes. Were they friends? Yes. Did they spend the entire battle of Gettysburg mooning over each other and crying over each other like they do in the movie? No. Uh, but again, you know, when you, put, when you sort of set up a novel and then a movie script of, you know, the guys on each side are almost like brothers and they're crying over each other and, uh, you know, screw the fighting. I'm going to go over there under a flag of truce just to see him, you know, kind of thing and, and things like that. And again, it all it all sort of perpetuates this idea that it was a uh, quote unquote gentleman's war fought by guys who, if they weren't brothers, doggone it, they, they could have been close enough to be brothers. Well, that's something that I think. From the Civil War as a whole, it's a lot of people see that as it was, you know, friends fighting against friends and family against family. And so it, I wonder, I'm thinking out loud here, if, you know, they're kind of trying to, in the movie, portray almost that overall Civil War aspect of a lot of these people knew each other on both sides. And so if they weren't fighting against each other, they would be friends. And so they're trying to find characters in there in the movie to portray that aspect of, you know, of overall. A lot of that is true. They did know each other. They did serve together in Mexico. They did go to West Point together. But two and a half years into the war, you know, are they really saying, uh, hey, is that Eric over on the other side? You know, I'm thinking they're planning tactics and strategy and stuff like that. And, and not worry about it. again, we get it. You know, it's, it's not a documentary. It's Hollywood. It's got to establish some characters. And, you know, from a character point of view, it does that admirably. So I'm going to say something nice about it. I don't know if we've really done that yet. And I think the movie reinforces the idea that the Civil War in many ways is the grand heroic epic in American history. And I think it's something that, you know, almost you could have had written by the Greeks almost. And Gettysburg's kind of that climactic moment. So you're trying to find, think about Greek epics, there's these little lessons that are trying to be told, these greater issues at, at play. And that's, I think what we, we do sort of subconsciously with Gettysburg and civil war. And certainly the movie Gettysburg just reinforces that. Do I think Hancock is thinking about Armistead during this battle? Absolutely not. And Hancock would do everything in his power to absolutely annihilate Armistead and his troops. So they come to his front. There's no quarter going to be given here. And Armistead would do the same to Hancock. You know, friendship went out the window. Continuing on with the battle as far as the movie is concerned, we get on to 
day two, which would be Thursday, July 2nd, 1863. And this is where we see General Lee is ordering his troops at the beginning of the day. And that's when they start to realize, you know, there's this ridge that runs around Gettysburg, right? And we're starting to get this idea that, okay, here's going to be another big part of the battle. And at the end of the ridge, there's two large hills, little round top and big round top. According to the movie, there's no Union troops on those. And so Lee decides to order his men to attack those two hills. And there's a line of dialogue in the movie where Lee tells Longstreet that he wants this to be the final battle of the war. Here we go again. Yeah, exactly. You know, so he, he half expected General Meade and the bulk of the Union Army to be gone by the time they woke up in the morning, that this was not going to be a big conflict after all. Lee doesn't know this in the movie, but as viewers, we get to see Chamberlain and his men are given orders to defend the hills, and they're told that you're the last line of defense. So similar type of storyline that we had earlier where, okay, this the entire war rests on, and okay, well, if the entire war rests on this battle, you guys are the last line of defense on these hills, so therefore, it just adds those stakes to defending these two hills. So how much of that strategy that we see where the Confederates are trying to take the two hills, essentially trying to as the movie um, explains it, get around the Union positions and, and defeat them from, from that angle. How much of that strategy was actually at play? Lee is trying to drive Union troops off of a hill. It's just not Little Round Top. It's Cemetery Hill in the center of the Union line. The movie compresses and greatly simplifies the Confederate plan on July 2nd. There's a lot that's left out that I think, you know, once again, you got to cut things out and it's not a documentary. But, you know, I think this idea that Lee is looking to July 2nd to be the day that he's so tired of war and violence that the only way to end it by inflicting immense amounts of carnage on your opponent. Yeah, there's a lot goes in. There's a guy we adore named Dan Sickles that's never really talked about that plays a role in July 2nd. Longstreet gets delayed and in getting into position. Um, there's an attack on the northern end of the Union line around Culpsit on Cemetery Hill that doesn't really get talked about. So it is a very simplified view, but Lee's objective on July 2nd is Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge. He says it himself in his report. Would agree on that. And so what what Lee does, which, again, the movie kind of sort of gets right, what Lee does is he does direct Longstreet to basically attack the Union left with an idea of basically driving up and dislodging the Union forces from Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge. So Little Round Top by itself is never specified as an, as an objective. What happens, though? The guy that Eric mentioned, Union General Dan Stickles from New York, without orders from General Meade, moves forward and kind of reshapes and takes the whole Union left flank out of position so that when Longstreet's attack does begin at about four o'clock in the afternoon, the Union left flank doesn't look really the way Lee expected it to look or the way George Meade expected it to look. And so Longstreet goes into action really with a lot of chaos and confusion surrounding what's going on on the Union left, which again, you know, is going to happen in, in warfare anyways. But while all of this is going on, Chamberlain's commanding officer, Strong Vincent, who we see briefly in the movie, 
Vincent decides he is going to occupy Little Round Top and put the 20th Maine into position there. As the Confederates are now moving around the Union left, they end up coming towards Little Round Top, and yes, they try to dislodge the 20th Maine. So again, that part is accurate to you know to that extent. But again, the idea that anybody's really looking at Little Round Top, it's okay, you know, if you roll up the 20th Maine, a whole flank is going to cave in and the whole army is going to be on the run. That wasn't happening, and frankly, it would have been totally unrealistic and impractical. But again, you know, it's one of the highlights of the movie. For many years, people came here and they wanted to see where Chamberlain fought, and they wanted to see where the 20th Maine fought, and it greatly elevated the status of the uh, the 20th Maine. So, from a you know, from a cinematic perspective, it's it's very effective. It's just not all that accurate uh, historically. And I'm going to throw out another caveat before somebody bashes me there. We are not trashing Chamberlain. I like Joshua Chamberlain. I like the 20th Maine. The Chamberlain story is he is told to hold his ground, and he holds his ground. That's a good story. He's a hero. Let me say that again. Joshua Chamberlain is a hero. He just doesn't win the Battle of Gettysburg single-handedly. Like, you could kind of sort of come away from it. You mentioned Sickles moved the left flank. Was that something that he did because he knew about the Confederate positions and and kind of anticipated that? Or was that almost like just a pure coincidence just happened upon that? Well, they've been arguing that for 156, whatever year we're up to. (laughs) The long story short is Sickles thought the Peach Orchard, which again is an important position at the Gettysburg Battlefield, which doesn't really play into the movie at all, but a Peach Orchard along the Emmitsburg Road, Sickles thought that would be a better position for his troops and artillery. He also did think Confederates were going to attack his flank, and because of that, he moved forward. There's some, you know, some merit to the Sickles argument, but he does it without orders from General Meade, and that really disrupts a lot of uh, General Meade's defense, which again, you know, I'm tying this back to the movie. You know, that's a big dramatic reason why Strong Vincent and the 20th Maine end up going a little round top. And you don't get any of that drama in the movie. You know, that would be kind of a big deal. I mean, they mentioned it in the novel. That that would maybe be kind of interesting on screen to be the, oh, man, Sickles screwed up. We got to we got to get there. And they really don't do that. And because Eric and I love Dan Sickles to see Sickles on the big screen. Echoing what Jim said about the 20th Maine and Chamberlain, what they did was incredibly heroic on July 2nd. Uh, but over time, they've almost been mythologized and almost deified. Um, it's not just winning the battle. By making their stand and making their charge, they win the Battle of Gettysburg. By doing so, the Union wins the Civil War. Therefore, we are able to become the nation we are. You know, basically, you can draw the line out from Little Round Top all the way to, you know, if it wasn't for Chamberlain, we might all be speaking German right now. That, of course, leads to a blowback as well. There's an entire cottage industry of people now that just bash Chamberlain all the time, you know, which is unfair. Chamberlain never said he was the great hero of the battle. He never asked for that. Others have made him that, but he never did it himself. And even if he did embellish a little bit in his post-war memoirs, guess what? Every Civil War guy who wrote a post-war memoir embellishes record. That's what human beings do. And so, so yeah, as Eric said, there's a cottage industry that likes to bash Chamberlain. And you know what? You're not going to get that from us because we, we're, not, we're not buying that. We all, we all want to be hero of the story. We all do. 
And, and I think what happens with Chamberlain, of all the characters in the movie, Chamberlain, I think, is the most relatable to the average filmgoer. You know, I don't know what it's like to be Robert E. Lee. I didn't graduate second in my class at West Point. I don't know what that's like. I can relate to a college professor. You know, I can relate to a teacher. And I think what Chamberlain symbolizes for people is the hope that if you were in a desperate situation, that you could rise to the occasion and make a difference. And so that's, I think, where why people identify so much with Chamberlain, more so than I think other characters in the movie. But And, and it's a great story. You know, I mean, a year before the battle, Chamberlain's teaching philosophy and religion at Bowdoin College in Maine. Chamberlain's not the only citizen soldier we have in this battlefield. In fact, the majority of them were. But Chamberlain, uh, you know, just finds himself, you know, historically at the right place, right time that people are drawn to. Well, you mentioned earlier, not to get too far outside this movie in particular, but when you mentioned Saving Private Ryan and the mention of Chamberlain being a teacher, well, the hero in Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks' character, he's also a teacher, and it makes him very, very relatable. It reinforces the idea of, I'm doing a job. I'm not looking to be a hero. I'm just doing the best I can with the hand that was dealt to me. And sometimes that's all we can do in life, and sometimes that's what happens on a battlefield. Sometimes you get a good position, other times you don't. And sometimes it's just a very fickle difference between the two. Very well said. Moving on to the last day of the battle, as far as the movie is concerned, July 3rd. Of course, they wouldn't have known when you know the sun went up that that was going to be the last day, at least as far as the movie is concerned. It doesn't seem like they have any idea that this is going to be the last day of the battle. Not to interrupt you, but somebody does say that. Does it was the Garnet or somebody say, this is going to be the last day? So they, they, the movie guys are kind of thinking that, yeah. All the soldiers knew it was going to be the final day because early in the morning of the second, ominous music was piped in over the battlefield to let them know this is a serious day and they need to get their head in the game. This is my favorite part of the movie. This The Lee and Longstreet planning on July 3rd is my favorite part of the movie. Is it 100% accurate? Again, probably not, but it's it's my favorite part of the movie. So don't be dissing the ominous music. I like that part. <laughs> Well, as the movie explained things at Seminary Ridge, General Lee orders General Longstreet to take General Pickett and lead a charge to the heights in the center. And the plan is to split the federal line. Longstreet says there are three federal corps up there. They're well entrenched and his men are going to sustain like 50 percent casualties. A little later, he flat out tells Lee that he believes this attack is going to fail. He says this mostly because the men will have to walk a mile over open field. They're going to be under constant enemy fire the entire time. But Lee doesn't agree. He says he's never left the field in command of the enemy. Retreat's not an option. We're going to win this. They have command of the high ground, but in the long slope in the center, they're going to break. That's what Lee insists, right? He insists that General Pickett's Corps, they're fresh. They haven't engaged in battle yet, so he's confident that they're going to prevail. And then the movie takes us to the Union side, where Chamberlain's men are relieved by Colonel Rice's men. And the movie explains this as an order to give Chamberlain's men the well-needed rest from the previous day's fighting. Of course, they're asked to move right to the center, which... From a moment ago in the movie, it's exactly where General Pickett's going to attack. And as I was watching this, I was like, okay, this has to be a Hollywood moment where this is just too coincidental that for this to be real, right? That 
Chamberlain's men were ordered to rest by moving exactly where the Confederates planned to attack. Was that a Hollywood moment or is that actually how it happened? No, you got it. It's 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 a Hollywood moment. Now, again, it's it's been a long time since I've read the novel, but I'm pretty sure they more or less replay that in the novel. And again, I just point that out because people like to blame the movie. The movie is following the playbook of the novel, you know, fairly closely. But now you're right. It, it, it Chamberlain is moved on the morning of July 3rd. He's not on Little Round Top. He is moved closer to the center of the Union line, but he's not anywhere. You know, in the movie, they got to put Jeff Daniels in the thick of the action. And, he, you know, he's not anywhere near that in, in reality. And you'll notice, too, you don't see the 20th Maine fighting. You don't see Chamberlain and his brother fighting. They're just kind of like hanging out the whole time this is going on. So I think from a literary means you have to tie all these people together. You can't have this great hero Chamberlain just watching from afar. So it's a way to kind of put a bow on it. And But, you know, they're on Cemetery Ridge. They're just not really close to the angle where they're at. So I think there's a little bit of license taken there. But, um, but you know, I mean, as, hey, I've never written a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. So who am I to criticize uh, Michael Shara for that? That's the thing, right? Yeah. Well, that's a great point that it is following the the novel side and not as much the historical. So you think of from each iteration, it's going to get a little bit further from what actually happened. Yeah. You know, now what gets right to some of the, you know, to some of your kind of your introduction to this segment. What I think they get right is I do think Longstreet was skeptical about Lee's plans that day. What I don't think they get right is, you know, again, in the movie, the we'll go from ominous music to kind of mystical music you know mystical music kind of plays as lee stares off into space and then just kind of absent-mindedly says in the center they will break no you know robert e lee thought this would work and what they don't convey is how much he relied on his artillery he thought his artillery could break up the Union defenses and therefore make it possible for a lot of Longstreet's infantry to, you know, to reach Cemetery Ridge. Now, look, we know it didn't happen. We know the Union won. So save all the cards and letters for the folks who think I'm going lost cause again, because I'm not. But the point being that the movie just does does a disservice, I think, to Robert E. Lee. Again, as I said earlier, this is a great moment where they kind of make him seem unhinged. It might be a bad idea, but the the real Robert E. Lee thought with coordination between infantry and artillery that it could work. And I do think Longstreet was skeptical. So as I said, I think that part of the movie gets, you know, the movie gets right. And I think there's some good dialogue between the two. Like I said, it's my personal favorite part of the movie. Often we view what becomes known as Pickett's Charge with the with the genius of hindsight. We know it's going to fail, so therefore, because it failed, it's a bad idea. Well, no, it, I actually argue, I think Lee is actually thinking somewhat logically on July 3rd with the options that he's given. It doesn't mean they're good options, but I don't think it's just this, let's attack the center and, and they'll break. I just know it. Uh, God's will, as Lee would say. I think it, it's, it does a disservice to Lee because I think Lee does think through it logically. We did an entire episode on July 3rd. What was Lee thinking? Why does he make the the attack he does? And and I think, you know, it, it's a lot more complex than the movie makes it out to be. As I recall, is the way the movie is describing it, basically, he thinks that the 
forces at the center are going to be much, much less. You mentioned the artillery. I think the movie does mention that as well, that they want to do a barrage of artillery fire, and then they're going to send, it's called Pickett's Charge, but there's uh, Longstreet, Trimble, Pettigrew, and Pickett in the movie. And his idea is that they're going to be able to break through. I think the movie listed like 15,000 men. And so from that perspective, thinking of if he's assuming that there's you know 5,000, you're sending 15,000 men, the logic there, at least in my mind, you know, it's like, okay, well, this might actually work. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if Shara used this as a source, but Lee's military secretary wrote after the war that that was basically what they were trying to do. That, you know, initially they were looking at maybe attacking the flanks again, because a lot of things happened in the morning of July 3rd. Lee called that off. And then they started to look for another weak point and where they thought Cemetery Ridge, kind of the center Cemetery Ridge, they thought legitimately might be a weak point. And if you threw enough men at it, again, supported by artillery, it could potentially break. So again, they don't get the, I, my take is they don't get the details really right in the movie. But I think the big picture for me is, is close enough to, to be inaccurate. And I think you can come away from the movie with a general sense of what was going on with Pickett's Charge. Just have, just have Tommy Lee Jones playing Lee instead of Martin Keene or something like that. And I think, I think Lee would come off a whole lot better. And I kind of equate, you know, Pickett's charge. It's sort of like the last seconds of a football game and a team throws a Hail Mary pass. If everybody does their job, there's a chance it could work. But if nobody blocks and the quarterback gets sacked, it's a failure. And, and I think that's kind of what Lee is looking at. People assume, well, when do frontal assaults ever work? Well, they, they work. Otherwise, people would not do them. There's enough times where they were successful, and Lee is actually positioning this attack to what was on July 3rd, probably the weakest part of the Union line at that point. It just wasn't enough overwhelming force to to carry the position. And the artillery doesn't work. If the artillery works, he's got a fighting chance. If it doesn't work, he's got no chance. The way that the movie shows it, obviously it doesn't work, but there's it doesn't mention how many people die. You just see a, a lot of people dying. Of course, the fighting turns to bayonets and close range very, very quick. Right. I think I see a drop kick in there somewhere. Yeah, body slam. Yeah. I saw a suplex. <laughs> I have to go frame by frame for that one. I don't remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the director's cut. Well, after the battle, Martin Sheen's version of General Lee takes responsibility for this. He says, it's my fault. General Pickett's there. He's like, oh, you must look to your division. And Pickett's got tears in his eyes and he states, I generally, I have no division. And so that's how the Battle of Gettysburg officially comes to an end as far as the movie is concerned. How well did the movie do showing how the battle actually ended there after the failure of Pickett's charge? I think the movie does a decent job showing how Pickett's charge ends. You know, the Lee... The Lee moment of it's all my fault, it's all my fault, and as you said, encouraging Pickett or that, that stuff did happen. You know, I think if I had directed that movie, I might have directed those scenes a little bit differently because I still don't think Robert E. Lee comes off strong enough or forceful enough at that moment in the movie. You know, people who witnessed this in real life said this was a hell of an inspiring moment. You know, the Confederate Army is thinking, you know, this could be lights out. If the Union, if the Yankees counterattack, we're not going to be. And you have Robert E. Lee coming out and saying, "Boys, it's all my fault. Reform, reform with me." 
it will be ready. And again, I don't, I don't think the movie does a great job with that. But I think again, they get, they get kind of at least the basic idea right. As far as the end of the battle, you know, it's a little bit of a different story. I think, um, you know, the last time we see Lee and Longstreet, they're sitting around a campfire, both of them very much looking the worst for wear. And the total disintegration of Robert E. Lee that we have now seen on screen for the last four hours, I think just becomes complete as, you know, he almost bursts out into tears. I am so very tired. Lee and his lieutenants, Jeb Stewart, we didn't talk about Jeb Stewart, who the movie gives a bad rap to. Lee and his lieutenants do a heck of a job stage managing their exit and the retreat from Gettysburg. So if Lee was allowing himself to feel disappointed and defeated for a couple moments on the evening of July 3rd, 1863, he turned that around pretty quickly on that retreat. And, you know, as history tells us, you know, ultimately held off the Yankees long enough to, uh, to allow the army to get back. Yeah, and I think even the way, if you look at the end, you know, Lee, it's all my fault. He's almost this kind of doddering old man there, where it's Longstreet, pull, bring up the guns, get the line organized. Lee and Longstreet are both doing that. Other individuals are doing that. And what gets lost, this idea of it's all my fault, what Lee will then say is, now I need all my good soldiers reform, help me get out of this. Lee is immediately thinking what the next step is. And Lee is, I think, expecting there could be some Union troops pouring across Cemetery Ridge very soon. And he was going to be prepared for that. Yeah, that's a great point that you can't, I mean, you can't just give up. You got to be able to get out of it. Right. And I would argue, I've gone on record as saying this, I think Lee's finest moment ever as commander of the Army in Northern Virginia is the retreat from Gettysburg. Getting his army back into Virginia relatively intact with all the supplies, with most of your wounded, it allows the Confederacy to fight on for almost two more years. Anybody can invade. It's a lot harder to get 50, 60 miles out of enemy territory safely. History's full of examples. Think of Napoleon leaving Russia, of how it just absolutely devastated his army. Um, that doesn't happen to the army in Northern Virginia. And they're beaten, but they're not defeated. That's a great point. I know we've talked about quite a few different misconceptions that people might have from this movie, but are there any other major myths or misconceptions that you get on your tours from people who have seen this movie that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I just, you know, I touched on Jeb Stewart a moment ago because I think that's a that's a blatant one. You know, the idea that Jeb Stewart was up north riding around getting his name in the papers, you know, kind of thing. That's a perception you got from the general public a lot. Oh, yeah, Stewart wasn't. They even used the phrase joyriding. Like, you know, they don't remember anything else from the movie, but then all of a sudden joyriding will kind of pop out on you. So, yeah, Jeb Stewart, joyriding. Look, um, you know, I'm not saying Stewart's movements into Pennsylvania were the highlights of his career. They were not. But Stewart was given discretionary orders on how he was supposed to get into, into Pennsylvania. And um, he's trying to reconnect with the Army of Northern Virginia. He's not out joyriding, which again, you know, I think that's that's a really, really common myth. The only other thing I'll add to, you know, when we were talking about a little round top, Somebody will ding us if we don't mention that there's no cult sale in the movie. You know, you have a left flank, you got to have a right flank. There's heavy fighting going on at cult sale. And there are students in the battle who think that cult sale, the Union right flank, is even strategically more important than Little Round Top. 
And so, you know, we should we should mention that for the folks at home, who I think. For me, in terms of myths, I mean, we kind of cover, for one, there's two real big ones for me. Uh, one, I think, is the the portrayal of day one, which we already talked about. But I think the other idea is that all the Confederates had to do was just move around the Union Army. That it's this simple movement that if Longstreet was just listened to, and what's interesting is Lee actually addresses Longstreet's proposal in his official report. What he basically says is, we don't have the cavalry to screen it. We don't have the logistical ability to move our entire logistical line back. And also, we have to assume that the Union Army is just going to let us do it. And so I think Lee says it's just not feasible. And I've had people vehemently argue with me on tours that it could have been done. There's a difference between what you want to do and what you can do on a battlefield. And I think Lee realized it's just not, to quote a word, practicable um, to do that. Well, it sounds like between that and the charge, like a lot of the decisions, especially towards you know the end of the battle that Lee made were – I, I stuck between a rock and a hard place. Here's what I can do. Try to make the best decision you can in less than ideal situation by any means. It's Lee grasping for the initiative once again. Lee has the initiative in that campaign up until June 28th. A lot of things happen that change that, and Lee is attempting to regain the initiative that he never gets again. And Lee stops you know, driving the action. He begins reacting to the Union Army. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as you go from the 30th to the 1st to the 2nd to the 3rd, you can literally see Lee's options being removed from the table the longer that he's in Pennsylvania. And I would echo Eric's point, you know, the idea of moving around to the Confederate right is not nearly as easy or even possible as they make it in the movie. But again, they want to give us Longstreet the the all-knowing. And I think, I just say, I think Tom Berenger's performance in Longstreet is totally underrated. I think it's the best performance in the movie, but it gets lost under that bad beard. Everybody just remembers the beard. And I think, I think Longstreet does a great job. As, I think Berenger does a great job as Longstreet. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about Gettysburg. For anyone wanting to learn more about the real history, there is your podcast called The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. And you've also got tours of the battlefield as well. So my final question is kind of a two-parter. The first part is for someone listening to this who wants to walk through history by visiting the battlefield itself. Can you share a little bit of information about your tours, how someone can plan a visit? And then the second part is someone who's listening but can't visit Gettysburg. So they want to hear more from your podcast. Can you give an overview of your podcast and where someone can listen? Yeah, somebody's trying to find our podcast. Uh, we are found wherever podcasts are found on numerous platforms. You just type in even just Gettysburg. You'll find us, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. We'd recommend follow us on our social media as well. Um, we have a lot of great discussions there and interactions with our fans. If you can't get to Gettysburg, I think we're the next best thing listening to us talk about it. If you're coming to Gettysburg, there's a couple of ways that you can get tours through the Gettysburg Visitor Center, which is typically open in a non-COVID world, uh, the Gettysburg Heritage Center. Look up the Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides. 
need to contact us through the Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides. Or if you're following Eric and my podcast on Facebook, you can message us directly and maybe we could hook you up for a tour. So lots of different ways to do it. But the important thing is we want to get people to Gettysburg. And although I know we spent like the last hour kind of bashing the movie, what I think the movie Gettysburg does well is I think it creates a spirit spirit of Gettysburg, a spirit of why Gettysburg is important, the spirit of why it's endured. And, you know, in the mid-1990s, that movie did get a lot of people to come visit us in Gettysburg, and I would love to see, as I'm sure Eric would, I'd love to see a resurgence in that and, you know, have that happen again. And I think that's what we should thank the movie for, even when, you know, we're bashing and nitpicking on all the details. Sure. If nothing else, hopefully it raises awareness. When I started this podcast, it was one of the reasons why I started it was being able to connect with with folks like you that know that information and being able to get that deep dive of information that you, I mean, you could never get from you know an hour long conversation. As great as the information's been so far, there's so much more information out there. And I would recommend if you are coming to Gettysburg, whether you've been here hundreds of times or it's your first time, you're well served getting a licensed battlefield guide. Um, we've been here since 1915. We are truly the best in the world at what we do and helping people connect to and understand this battle. So if you're coming here uh, without a guide. And we can tailor the tour to almost any special interest. You know, I have I have specialty topics. Eric has specialty topics. Our colleagues do. You know, if there's an aspect of the battle you want to deep dive on, or if you just want a general overview, we can do we can do both of those scenarios. That's fantastic. I'll make sure to add all those links into the show notes for this episode as well. Thank you again so much for your time. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Jim and Eric once again for their time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie Gettysburg. If you want to learn even more about the real history of the battle, go subscribe to their excellent podcast called The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. In fact, they actually have a two-parter where they take a super deep dive into the historical accuracy of both the movie and the book the movie is based on. So they cover a lot more detail in those episodes than we did here today. Or schedule a tour if you want to see the places where the fighting took place. And don't forget about Jim's great books either. There are three of them as of this recording, and they are Sickles at Gettysburg, the controversial Civil War general who committed murder, abandoned Little Round Top, and declared himself the hero of Gettysburg. Jim also co-authored a book with Britt Eisenberg called Gettysburg's Peach Orchard. Longstreet, Sickles, and the bloody fight for the commanding ground along Emmitsburg Road. And last, but certainly not least, Jim co-authored the first battlefield guide about the final attack with Wayne Motts and cartographer Steve Stanley called Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, a guide to the most famous attack in American history. And of course, if you're driving or unable to look those up for now, then I'll make sure to add links to those books, their podcast, and tours in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, 1% of all battlefield casualties during the American Civil War were caused by bayonets. Number two, winning the Battle of Gettysburg did not guarantee victory for winning the American Civil War. 
Number three, the Union planned the Battle of Gettysburg to push the Confederacy out of Pennsylvania. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. One percent of all battlefield casualties during the American Civil War were caused by bayonets. That is true. Eric pointed out that even though a lot of movies tend to depict fighting during the Civil War as turning to close combat every time real quickly with bayonets, only 1% of battlefield casualties during the American Civil War were caused by bayonets. Next is number two. Winning the Battle of Gettysburg did not guarantee victory for winning the American Civil War. That is also true. As both Jim and Eric mentioned, even though the Union Army won both the Battle of Gettysburg and would go on to win the overall war, it wasn't necessarily the victory at Gettysburg that let the Union win the war. As they pointed out, General Lee still managed to get his army out of Gettysburg and continue fighting for two more years. That means number three is the lie. The Union planned the Battle of Gettysburg to push the Confederacy out of Pennsylvania. Jim and Eric pointed out that the Battle of Gettysburg is what military historians refer to as a meeting engagement. Basically, even though both sides did know about the presence of enemy soldiers nearby, neither side planned out this massive battle. In fact, depending on how events played out, it's very possible that there could have just been a few clashes and not much more. Of course, we know from history that's not what happened, as the Battle of Gettysburg ended up being the bloodiest battle of the American Civil War with over 50,000 casualties between July 1st and July 3rd, 1863. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that is surprising to people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before... It's how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all those podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 39 hours to create and cost $24.13 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So in other words, that 39 hours did not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, email, and all those other little things outside creating a podcast episode that are required to make a podcast. And similarly, on the expenses side, that $24.13 is just for things specifically for this one episode, which mostly is going to be research material. It doesn't include any of the podcast-relating expenses that go beyond making this one episode. For example, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the cables that are hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface that the microphone is plugged into, the computer that the audio interface is plugged into, the software that I'm recording this on right now, all the podcast and website hosting costs that are a monthly subscription and on and on. All of those things take time to set up and maintain and cost money that go beyond things that are associated with this one episode. But... They are all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. 
In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it's not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support the show financially so that we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are 49 minisodes over there covering different fictional movies and the way that they use real history or events to make them seem more realistic. For example, even though we haven't had a full-length episode of Based on a True Story for a few weeks now, there have been a couple minisodes released over on the producer's feed covering movies like The Secret Life of Pets and Bumblebee. There are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and plenty more planned and in the works as a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. If social media isn't your thing, you can 